0: You're listening to episode 168 of the Pastor-Writer podcast, conversations on reading, writing, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replogle. Well, in today's episode, we're kicking off a new series of conversations based on the Five Masculine Instincts book that releases March 1st. Uh, this is really a first for the Past Writer podcast, but uh, I'm going to be the one answering the questions. A good friend joins me, Peter Ostapko, and uh, it's going to be nine episodes. We talk through each chapter of the book, so I think it'll give you a good feel for the content. And if you pre-order the book, I shared about that in last week's episode. You can do that anywhere you buy books. And if you go to the 5 com and share that pre-order information with me, there's a simple form there. Uh, you'll get access to all of these interviews in a video format we were professionally filmed in a studio setting i think they'd work great for a group setting if you're reading the book together as well as a 97 page study guide and there's some more bonuses to come so hope you enjoy this conversation hope it gives you a good glimpse into the book as always thanks for listening I'm grateful for the opportunity to sit down today with Peter Stopko. Peter's a personal friend and also the founder and leader of the Kinsman Journal. It's an organization that's been producing and creating content specifically for men over the last couple of years. And so he had a chance to read the book, The Five Masculine Instincts. And we thought what we might do for a series of conversations here is just talk about some of his takeaways, some questions, and uh, hopefully give you a little bit of a behind-the-scenes look at writing and some of the thought process that went into the chapters and really what struck you as well, too. So thanks yeah. for
1: thanks for joining me for the series of Conversations. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. No, I'm really excited. I think we're going to have some really important dialogue on some subject matter that I think really men really want to talk about. And so I'm really thrilled for this book to release because I think it's, it's timely and it's needed. And I think the content is very relevant. Uh, to where we are culturally, but also you really unpack some some areas of scripture and of story and of narrative that I've not heard before. So I think I think the readers are going to really really love it. Yeah, so.
0: thanks, thanks. Well, I'm happy to. We're going to take this chapter by chapter. So we'll start with yeah. uh, chapter one and then talk about what struck you, questions you had from it as well.
1: Yeah. So you started out talking about this narr- or this parallel between men and meat. So it's interesting. Now, I'm a ribeye guy. My wife likes the filet. Uh, but yes, men love to grill and men love meat. So yeah. tell me tell me why you started with that. Uh, so
0: the statistics say that most men are kind of like I was growing up. Meat was, it wasn't a meal unless you had meat. I grew up deer hunting. I grew up you know, uh, steak in all of its forms. I've always said I'm kind of a bacon cheeseburger sort of guy. But the statistics actually say that men eat on average, 57% more meat than women. Okay, And they eat significantly more than the U.S. dietary guidelines recommend. And the big question is, why? Why do men eat more meat than women? It seems so obvious. Maybe it's a funny question to even ask. But what struck me was that there is this whole field of academic research looking into why men eat more meat than women. Um, There was this great study done at the University of Hawaii, Manoa, uh, where they told a group of men that they were going to be participating in an app interface test. So they were going to be looking at this app and they were going to be using the app to order pizzas. And the whole goal was they were helping this design team refine that app experience. Really what it was, was an academic study about the association between masculinity and meat consumption. Hmm. And so for the participants, what they did is they had each of them take a personality profile exam prior to the test And they biased the results and told half of the men that they had scored in their personality type more in line with female participants than male participants. They just made that up. Uh, And the study literally uses the phrase, which I love, to create a masculine threat condition. (laughs) So they question their masculinity by telling them they're more like women than men. And then they kick them into this app to start ordering pizzas. And what they found was statistically the men who had had their masculinity threatened ordered more meat on their pizza than men who hadn't and then they also gave them uh, this anxiety post anxiety exam some of the men who had their masculinity threatened were only given vegetable options it's hard to believe this is an actual scientific study but it was Uh, (laughs) the men who were only given vegetables after having their masculinity threatened had a higher post exam anxiety score than the men who were able to order more meat so what the study basically proposed was uh, men would use meat consumption as a way to fix a threat to their masculinity being threatened. Mm. Uh, so the real question, though, is why? Why do men associate masculinity with meat consumption?
1: Kind and of that's like a where,
0: crutch, like they like fall back on it. Yeah, or that there's something in me that feels like to be a man— or to be a masculine man, I have to eat meat, that meat is associated with that. And so there's this whole range of theories on why that might be. There are some people who think it's just strictly marketing, that there's sort of a caricature of men that marketers have used to sell meat. So you can think of things like the Hardee's commercials that have been famous from the past, use beautiful models and women and cars and sell a cheeseburger that way, right? You create this character, men eat meat. Um, There are others who think that it's actually evolutionary and biological. There's some who think during the Neolithic period that is men began to take on the hunting role that they started eating more red meat, women started eating more uh, wheat, and they actually see the evidence in the biology, <laughs> the genetic structure of men and women from that period. So maybe it's a biological impulse that you, through evolution you're unable to avoid. Uh, some think that eating meat is a, you probably heard proponents of the carnivore diet, that this yeah. is actually a health benefit to eat yeah. nothing but meat. And on the opposite end of that spectrum, there's a call right now that the only way we're going to deal with global warming is to end meat consumption, and there's yeah. a call for people to become vegan. And so the thing I try to open the book by saying is there is a lot of controversy around that prime rib that you like to order or that cheeseburger you got for lunch. And if we can't even agree on what men should eat and why men like to eat those things, well, what else is confusing about being a man today? And I think most men recognize the answer to that question is a lot. It's a way of talking about the controversy that exists right now around trying to even have a conversation about masculinity and who men are, let alone who men should be.
1: Yeah. So so you're saying we can't agree on it? I mean, that doesn't <laughs> seem so far-fetched, right? Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, it, Say the word masculinity and automatically everybody yeah. starts taking sides and making assumptions and
1: yeah. the lines are drawn. Well, I mean, right now, I mean, just in the last few years, you know, we, there's the Me Too movement. There's, you know, phrases like tos- toxic masculinity. Um, you know, there's a lot of discord on that subject specifically and why do you why do you feel though on a greater context why the conversations around men are just not working yeah so some of the conversations have been good i don't think anybody would say uh,
0: we shouldn't be talking about how men behave or the things that we've inherited as part of the the cultural environment but to me the real challenge is there's there's sort of two cultural narratives going on right now that men end up picking between and one is Uh, traditional masculinity is toxic and it should be deconstructed that we should stop what it is to be a man that we've inherited and we should start over based on this current position uh, in culture. That has created a kind of opposite extreme that I say makes traditional masculinity salvific. That what you need to do is you need to indulge the masculine traits. You need to uh, don't question them. Indulge them. like Live into them. Lean into them. That's true masculinity. And the challenge is what really gets missed is any opportunity to become better. Both of these sort of extreme Look at the external expectations of men and most of the men I know they have ideals they wish that they could live up to they know the ways that they fall short as a man they know the ways they don't live up to who they wish they could be and the way we're framing the conversation right now in some ways good and right and wrong on both sides the, the real issue is because of the controversy we're not able to have a conversation about how you actually become a better man how you deal with the things you know are a problem already in your life. Um. And if I could say too, I don't think the church has done well in responding to this because yeah. when I, if you bring up the conversation, well, it's a hard topic. I mean, it's difficult to talk about. Well, and if you bring up the conversation about who men should be in a group of Christians, yeah. what tends to happen is you almost immediately or very quickly will fall into the discussion of egalitarian uh, versus complementarian, and you yeah. will pretty quickly get to like an Ephesians conversation about yeah. the role of a man in a marriage. Yeah. And what I sense happening is there's a lot of theological posturing, that if I have the right theological definition of who a man should be, then I am a man because I hold that right position. It's not that those conversations don't matter. I think those conversations matter a lot, and we should be reading the Bible. We should be developing theological views. I have my own on all of those questions. But if that's the starting point Mm -hmm. for a conversation about who men should be, then the thing it also cuts out is... How do I just become a better man? Because so much of the questions the church is trying to address with men about how we live and what we do and the leadership roles that we take, those are dependent on a man of character to be able to do them well. And I think we've tried to talk about masculinity, like if you just do those things, then you'll be a man. I think we need to be having a conversation about character. How do I become the kind of man who can bear those responsibilities, who can take on those roles well?
1: Well, something you said—you talk about the church, or just in general—I think one of the reasons why it's difficult for us to have these conversations in a large context is because men are prideful. You know, whether it's unbeknownst to us or not, like we are—we're prideful at our core, and so it's a constant, you know, internal struggle about recognizing our own inadequacies, our own weaknesses. And so, some, something you said really jumped out in the book. You said men are constantly left on the defensive, often not sure what they are defending but feeling threatened nonetheless. Tell me a little bit more about that.
0: Yeah. You know, it's probably a reflection of, um, I think men feel under attack, right or wrong. Yeah. Um, I think there are certain things that men do that are they should be up for leading discussions on <laughs> if yeah. that's who we want to be as men. But men feel culturally, yeah. generally speaking, that there's a sort of hostility towards them. And I think that what that has created in men is a defensiveness and an almost a kind of indulgence in an unwillingness to talk about those things. I feel threatened, therefore, anything you say to me, I'm going to reject and defend myself from. And I think a lot of men end up sort of defending Mm. parts of masculinity That I'm not sure without the hostility they would even associate themselves with. But the general threat condition leaves a lot of men feeling defensive. So we have the really difficult task of, of untangling some of these things and being able to say to one another, okay, the goal here is not to just attack men. The goal is to become better men. Yeah. To do that takes a kind of self-suspicion, a kind of humility to be able to say, where is it that I need to improve? Where is yeah. God asking me to become better? Yeah. You have to be able to hear those things without becoming defensive. Yeah. But it also has oh, to be something good. more than just constant attack. It's not enough to just say, here's all the problems with men. We also have to be able to say, yeah, but how do we become better? How Absolutely. do we? What's the next step forward in Absolutely. the process?
1: Yeah. Well, I think all guys, I mean, we all desire that, right? And so, but I think it's, it's not so easy as just laying out a 10 step framework because I think it's different for every man, you know? So one idea that you introduce here in this first chapter is this idea of the male malaise. So... Tell me a little bit more about that, because malaise is not a word that most men often use. And so I think we all first need a definition yeah, sure. and an understanding of what exactly does that mean.
0: Yeah. So this is connected to that idea of a general defensiveness. Okay. We just feel if you if you have something negative to say to me, I feel automatically defensive. Yeah. Malaise—the word itself just simply means a sense of something being wrong or a kind of sickness, but an inability to pinpoint exactly to what it is. So you okay. could physically feel malaise; you just feel down, you feel yeah. dragged. Um, we talk about a cultural malaise where something seems to be off, things yeah. aren't working in culture, which I yep. think this resonates in this topic yep. of masculinity. But we're not exactly sure what's wrong. Yeah. Um, men feel this way about the toxic masculinity conversation—like there's something off, there's something right that is toxic, but the whole thing just doesn't. I can't put my finger on it. I don't know exactly what's wrong but really i the reason i love that word is there's um a novel by uh, walker percy called the moviegoer that's all about a sort of disillusioned 20 30 something male who just he's he's fallen out of the sort of normal patterns of you know dating and marriage and children and career and him struggling to find meaning and there's a line within the novel where he says um that the malaise had settled like a fallout. And the only thing they feared more than the bomb falling, talking this is from like the fifties and sixties. So yeah. more the only thing they feared more than an atomic bomb was that the bomb wouldn't fall. And it was this idea that really struck me of here are these men who feel like I want my life to be for something. I want yeah. it to matter. I want to yeah. live into something meaningful. And the only thing worse than something catastrophic happening is that nothing meaningful would ever happen, that I would just live in this uneasy sense of malaise. And um, the character in the novel goes on to say, what is there left to do but to fall prey to desire? When you find yourself in this sort of purposeless malaise of not sure what's wrong or how to get better, what do you have to fall back on but instinct and desire and impulse and and indulging it? And I think that captures really well where a lot of men culturally are right now.
1: Well, you really kind of lead into the perfect next question because you talk about this idea of instincts you know and i think men are passionate men have you know they have vision they want to have vision there are things that they want to accomplish and do i think i think innately god created men to be doers but also i think sometimes we've gone to the extreme of that and so you really speak to this idea of instincts okay. and so but this is what i really love about the book is is i've not really heard it presented this way before. And so talk a little bit about this idea of instincts with men.
0: Yeah. Well, when it comes to men's uh, books, particularly Christians, there's these sort of Stereotype ways of approaching oh, yeah. it, like uh, money, sex, and power, right? Yeah. Or we'll sometimes talk about um, masculine characteristics or yeah. traits or personality traits. Uh, I wanted a way of talking about something more deeply rooted than that. Yeah. Oftentimes, the conversation ends up just being, "Here are the particular ways men tend to sin," yeah. which are often true and accurate. Sure, but they don't ask that deeper question to yeah. say why those particular sins? I mean, Peter, why the sins in your, why those particular sins for you and maybe different ones for your wife or different ones from your brother or cousin, or what is it teaching men to explore more deeply other than just saying, Hey, I'm a man, these are the sins. Um, and for me, instincts was a good language for that. I opened, uh, one of the chapters with a quote that says ideas pull the trigger, but instincts load the gun. And I think that what we often don't recognize about the decisions we make is that there are impulses, there are narratives, there's ways of framing the world that seem like common sense to us that drive us towards a certain action. And sometimes those instincts are not bad. I mean, in the book, uh, uh, instincts like adventure and ambition and reputation, I write about all of those as these aren't sinful things, right? It's not that we're sinning by wanting to go on an adventure or to have a great ambition. The problem is if those things are instincts or impulses that we've never set down and actually understood, then there are things driving us. There are things leading us. There are things mastering us that we're not in control of. And that's when they do have a tendency to lead us into sin or to lead us into desperation or disillusionment. And so for most men, I think that's the real challenge right now is how do I dig deeper into my own life and start to understand the impulses that are actually motivating some of the lack of character or yep. the particular sins that yep. i know i'm unhappy with and yep. want to grow beyond it's going to take some deeper exploration and i think instincts is an intriguing and helpful way of thinking about what those might be
1: so what you're saying is we got to do some hard work individually
0: yeah the hard work that and let's push that a little further hard yep. work that i don't think the culture is helping you do right yep. now they only yep. want to talk about the externals or yep. the the framing it in politics yep. I don't think the church has always done well at some churches are exceptions, obviously. And maybe you've had great mentors in your life, but oftentimes the way we've approached men's ministry, I joke has been beards and bacon and blowing things up and just trying to attract men to something because that's a challenge as well. So the work, the work is really yours to pick up. You know, how do I, how do I recognize my instincts? How do I recognize the particular ways they lead me towards sin and destruction or can be matured into something that actually becomes a point of character in my life that I can build on to become a better man, the man God's calling me
1: to be. Yeah. I I started to smile when you were talking because just recently at our church, we did an event and it was an amazing event, but it was literally a beast feast. And we had a tailgate where we had like sports and activities, but then we had like, you know, nine different types of game and meat that were grilled up. And it was just... I mean, I went, we had a ton of fun. Like yes. it was great. Well, but and like, I, I was trying to be
0: careful too, because I'm not, pastors are in a really difficult situation oh, yeah, right now because all the
1: statistics
0: say that men aren't showing up. Yeah. They're practicing religion publicly less than women. Yeah. They're practicing their religious views privately less than women. They're yeah. praying less than women, reading their Bible less than women, attending church services less than women. And so most pastors are recognizing like, yeah. how in the world do I attract a generation of men back into the church? Yeah. And sure, like there's nothing wrong with us getting together and having fun. And oftentimes oh, that's exactly. The way to do it. But at some point, that conversation has to go beyond attracting you in and say, at some point, you and I have to get real serious about what's actually going on. And neither one of us can play around in this sort of facade of masculinity that I'm dumb or dense because I'm a man and I'll eat things and shoot things, which I like to do. But I somehow can't think more deeply about my life. I'm not willing to accept that. Men can think deeply about who they are and why their particular instincts are leading to sin. And that's the real work we've got to get to.
1: Well, I've heard this analogy before that sometimes guys like to go shoulder to shoulder before they go face to face. And I think the church does a good job. And I think culturally men do a pretty good job on shoulder to shoulder, you know, you know, going to sporting events or, you know, watching you know certain things together or hanging out or having a good time. But when it comes to that face to face, that really deep, you know, really diving into some deep issues of the heart and of our lives you know, it's a place where most men just really don't want to go. And so I think, I think this book, I think is going to help outline some ways where we can do that internally, but hopefully as a result of that, start having some meaningful conversations because it is essential that we start having these conversations, not just shoulder to shoulder, but face to face. Yeah.
0: Well, and hopefully what the book does is it helps men maybe even ask that question. Why am I reluctant to be transparent? Why am I reluctant to face the things even within myself? Why am I reluctant to open up to somebody else about them? And perhaps, the book will help give language for that, yeah. um, some common language around discussing some of these instincts. And uh, yeah, a good, a good summary of chapter one, I think, and I think so. sets us up yeah. to get into chapter two. Yeah, let's do it. a reminder, you can find show notes for today's episode by going to pastorrider.com And also, while you're at it, you might check out the 5 instincts.com. You'll find information about pre-ordering the book, getting the episode you listened to in video format that you could download using a group setting if you're interested as well as that 97-page study guide. And also, while you're on the site, there's a free assessment. If you're interested in learning more about the instincts, a 25-question assessment that'll help you evaluate yourself and better understand maybe which of those instincts are at work in your life. I'm excited for uh, the book. Thanks to so many of you who have pre-ordered and been sharing it. Uh, Last week, I was really honored. The book was named a number one new release in Christian leadership, as well as in the top 10 for men's books on Amazon. So it's uh, exciting to see the book getting out there and people discovering it. And I owe you a big thanks for that. Looking forward to bringing you more of these conversations next week. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.